Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to have with us uh, today uh, the Attorney General of the state of North Carolina. As a matter of fact, the 50th Attorney General of the state of North Carolina. Uh, and that would be the Honorable Josh Stein. And Josh, thank you so much, Mr. Attorney General, for being with us. Don, it's um, always a pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. We are doing this uh, program uh, as a lot of programs are being done today, sort of by remote control. I, I happen to be at my house. The Attorney General happens to be at the station. Jason happens to be there. But uh, uh, Zoom is just sort of an interesting way to c- c- communicate. We've all learned some new tricks during this uh, this uh, situation that uh, kind of amazing that a, te- carry on. a technology or a company name that none of us had heard of in February now has become a verb that we all use. That's right. You know, it's interesting how uh, companies that uh, have a word that can become a, a verb do very well. For example, uh, Google people, you know, that's a name, but it's also a, has become a, a verb. We, we Google, and so Zoom has become a verb as well as the name of the company. Yep, that's what you want. Well, you know, the wheels of justice always move kind of slowly, and that's probably uh, good. But uh, this pandemic that we are in, this situation, has certainly changed the way that the uh, whole system of justice is working in North Carolina and the court system. So sort of give us an overview uh, of what's happening and how uh, this is affecting the courts and the judicial system. Happy to, yes. The the courts uh, obviously fall under the judiciary, and the head of the court system is the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, Sherry Beasley. And as head of the administrative office of the courts, right when this thing hit in March, she shut the courts down for in-person hearings And she did that for about six weeks, and then she extended the order, I think, for another uh, five or six weeks. The courts did remain open if, for instance, you were in a domestic violence situation and you needed a protective order. You could continue to get one even during that time period. Um, The courts are now reopened. They're back in business. But jury trials have not yet commenced because they hadn't figured out how do you put 12 jurors in a box sitting close to each other for extended periods of time. And so a number of hearings, motions, bench trials, a lot of that work is has restarted. But a lot of the things that require a jury trial, criminal matters, for instance, or, or some civil matters, those have not happened. And so the, the, those court dates have been put off until the fall and so what we're seeing is, is a pretty big backlog. Uh, and it, once we ever get to the point where we figure out how to deal with this craziness that we li- we're living in, uh, it is going to be a, a little while to work this through the system. Well, you know, it, it's uh, of course, there's, there's been a, a backlog for a long time to begin with. As we said earlier, the wheels of justice sort of turn slow to begin with. Uh, so how do we speed things up when things do get back to some semblance of normal? Well, basically, the the court, the judges will encourage the parties to have either a bench trial where it's the judge who decides the case, or they might even have some uh, reduced jury pool side where maybe it's six jurors instead of 12. But a lot of that requires the consent of both parties. Uh, and some 
some parties will be happy to do that to advance the wheels of justice. But oftentimes, Don, when there's a trial, one side really wants to go fast and the other side may have a little less interest in speed. And for those that want to go slow, frankly, this is a situation that uh, goes in their favor. Well, it's, it's certainly interesting. And, and, you know, we've heard this dozens and dozens of times, so it sort of goes without without saying, but we don't have anything to compare what we're in, the situation we're in, with anything in our history. It's just this is totally unique and, and totally strange. It's just uh, a different day and age. And uh, uh, radio stations are operating differently and uh, court systems are operating differently. What about the crime rate in general? Has that decreased during this time because of uh, because of the factors that uh, are present? We did see that, at least initially. There was a reduction in, in a lot of crimes. I think part of that had to do with folks sheltering at home. You know, there was less opportunity for property crimes because everybody was at their place uh, of residence, and so um, few opportunities for, for stealing and such. We saw an uptick in domestic violence, unfortunately, when people are forced to shelter at home and they're under a lot of stress uh, from from the virus. Maybe they lost their jobs. Those are conditions in which domestic violence uh, can can unfortunately see a spike. And we did we've seen that. Um, I've seen some anecdotal evidence of some increase in shootings. Like the last couple weekends, there's been a lot of shootings. But whether that uh, is holds the case in every jurisdiction across the state from a statistical perspective i, I don't know yet we, it's too too soon to see well again uh, it, it, it's certainly a, a difficult time for everyone and patience does run a little thin sometimes when you are forced to and of course a lot of people are out of work and, yeah and, uh, terrible a lot of stress and so forth so now uh, you're in an election. Uh, you're up for re-election. How is this changing your, uh, you not only you but the, all the candidates? How are they going to uh, look at the November elections now? I just came from lunch, Don, and saw a, a court of appeals judge who's running for re-election, and he was saying it's the the dangest thing. I mean, he's having the hardest time. Like, how how do you get out there and talk to people? when you can't get in front of them face-to-face. And so it has completely changed the way campaigns operate. We're doing everything with Zoom, just like we're doing this interview. Uh, I've got, I was in Brevard last night. I'm going to be in Boone tonight. I was in Shelby the night before. So I'm getting around the state. I'm just doing it from my home office instead of by the car. Um, but there's no question that you you don't get as much uh, out of the experience if you're not there face-to-face. And uh, but you have, to, but you have to, yeah, you know, we're like everybody else, you know, you gotta, you gotta change to the circumstance. Well, of course the SBI has uh, their job to do. And how does, how has this affected the way that they investigate crimes? I think law enforcement is just proceeding as they always do. Uh, you know, they, they wear the safety, uh, equipment, the PPE as much as they possibly can. But in terms of public safety, I think they're proceeding, uh, very much alike what they used to do. The state crime lab, uh, which analyzes all the crime scene evidence, what we've been doing with them is staging when folks come in so they, they're not all there at the same time. And when you're a scientist, you do a lot of science at the, t- at the lab, but then you also do a lot of written analysis of it afterwards. And so when you're doing that part of your job, 
folks are taking that home with them. So we're trying to keep people in the lab only to the extent for, – for the minimum amount of time that they need to do to do their jobs – but obviously continuing to analyze cases and investigate cases to bring justice for victims is a critical priority for all of law enforcement. How do you think this will long-term affect things? A lot of people in business are now beginning to find out that, oh, well, wait a minute, we, we can cut out a lot of travel. We can uh, do things differently. We might need less office space because of the fact that some of our work can be done from home just as easily as in, in an office. Do you see this long-term having an effect on the way uh, the Attorney General's office works and the SBI and the Graham line? I think so. I mean, I think everything you just said is accurate. <laughs> I've talked to some people about, obviously, this has been a common com- com- topic of conversation. A lot of people are like, find me a conference. I want to go to a conference. Like, they're going stir-crazy, and they want to get out of their homes, and they want to go on some trip somewhere. Um but, you know, now's not the time for that. It's too early still. So I think that there – obviously there will continue to be conferences because just like I was talking about in the campaigning, when you are not face-to-face, you lose out on a lot. You're able to take care of the basics over the internet through through uh, Zoom and other programs, but you just miss out on the – standing in line at the uh, food table, you know, having a drink at night, you know, that kind of interpersonal relationship that is necessary in order to really do whatever we do well. And so there will always be a place for these conferences and meetings, but I think there will be less. I I do think there will be less. And I also think that there will be more um, flexibility within state government for people to work at home and in the office to to telecommute, even when there's no health crisis going on, because folks are realizing you can actually be really productive at home. And for some people who have that 45 minute, hour and a half commute, you know that that's rough. Well, you know, um, we assumed something when we started the broadcast. We assumed when we were talking about Zoom that all of our listeners know what Zoom is, uh, because a lot of people don't have the uh, the need to participate, but uh, if they perhaps have used FaceTime and Zoom is just a sophisticated and more uh, convenient way of having uh, uh, FaceTime with whoever you're talking about. But it is so much more effective uh, when you're, you know, we've had teleconferences forever, but it is so much better when you can see the face and see the, the person on the other end. And that, that has changed the dynamic a lot. Truly. That's all you're going to say. Truly, I was hoping you were going to elaborate on that a little bit longer. You need, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, we are we're social creatures. Human beings, we're social creatures, and yeah. uh, I think that when we get past this, and obviously we are going to get past it, we just don't know exactly when we will. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of interest in going out, going to meetings, seeing colleagues who they hadn't seen in person in a long time. Um, I know I'll be anxious. Yeah. Well, we uh, in our next segment, we're going to start talking about some scams because uh, it seems like every time we have any kind of an emergency or a change in the economic situation or a hurricane or something like this, this unfortunately brings out scams. And we're going to talk with the attorney general about the particular scams that he may be seeing uh, that, are, that are involved with the COVID-19 situation. 
Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and we will be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Attorney General Josh Stein. And we have uh, already talked about in the first segment uh, what is happening to our whole system of justice, how the court system is essentially uh, certainly slowed in its process and will be having a backlog for some time. Now we want to turn a little bit more to uh, some of the things that uh, perhaps you have not been hearing as much about as maybe you should, and that is scams. And as we said before the break, uh, it seems like every time we have a tornado or a hurricane or some sort of a natural emergency, uh, there's always someone who has figured out a way to, to scam people and, um, so, so we have this situation now with COVID-19. Uh, the pandemic uh, brings out the worst in some people. So what are some of the things that are going on that you have already uh, started investigating? Yeah, it's a, it's a sad statement, but there are people who are greedy and heartless. And all they do is they wait for a moment when people are really confused, really afraid, uncertain, and focused on some big event. And and that's exactly what coronavirus represents. This is something where they're trying to exploit in order to take advantage of people to steal their money or personal information. And we've seen literally dozens of different types of scams. There's the miracle cure. I've got, you're sick, take this medication, you will instantly be cured. Uh, Tests that, that people can get access to. Uh, dietary supplements to reduce the risk of ever contracting the disease. Things like we can test your heating and air duct system and eliminate all viruses from your home. Things that just are uh, uh, patently untrue uh, in order to, they, they pitch a fear. They do it either by phone, by text, by email. Some of them are even door-to-door, social media. And then they try to either get money from you or 
your personal information. We've seen it about the economic impact payment and the PPP loan programs. We've seen it around uh, contact tracing about it, whether you've been in touch with somebody who has contracted the virus. They'll often impersonate some government official and, and really try to make you very much afraid so that you'll click a link or provide a credit card. Uh, and folks just really need to be skeptical. They have to understand that there are bad people who will try to steal from them. And uh, if they have any questions at all, we really encourage them to just call my office. We have a toll-free number. You know, before you say yes and, and give over that credit card number and you can't get your money back, much better to pause, deliberate, ask somebody be before the money's gone out the door. Well, the old statement, if it seems too good to be true, uh, it probably is a scam. It's true. And, and if that rule, if people could actually live by that rule, uh, and, and the other rule being just be skeptical, uh, then they'll they'll be much better off. Um, we have a toll-free number, Don. It's 877-5-NO-SCAM, 877-5-NO-SCAM. So people can just dial that number, and they'll get one of my consumer protection specialists and ask them, say, hey, I just got this weird call from the IRS saying that I can't get my economic impact payment until I give them my bank account number. And we'll say, no, hold on, don't give them your bank account number. Uh, these are things that they're all very familiar with. So uh, uh, is this open 24 hours a day or just during business During hours? business hours, yes. Business hours, which is roughly, what, 9 to 5? or? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, as always, uh, the seniors are always targets for scam artists. And in this case, uh, seniors have been really uh, warned, I guess, more and more about the fact that uh, the older you are, the more susceptible you are to this being a serious condition. And so I guess seniors are sort of set up for the scam to begin with. Yeah, we, we, we actually have this initiative. We called it Operation Silver Shield. And yesterday we had a statewide teletown hall open to any North Carolinian who wanted to go really into detail about all the different types of scams that are going on uh, out there. Uh, and we had a lot of people participate. You know, seniors want their home more than younger folks. And so they're available. They're more likely to be reached on a phone. You know, culturally, they answer the phone more than young people do. Young people like to text. They don't answer the phone as much. They have savings, uh, so they have more money, so they're a ripe target in that regard. Uh, and so sadly, they get targeted more than almost any other pop age pop age group. And so we really want seniors to be exceptionally careful. Uh, we, If you have parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, check in with them. Make sure that they're aware of all the different types of scams that are going on out there and uh, and just assure them that if they ever get something that they're not, it doesn't feel quite right, to just pause and give give you a call. Because you really want to protect somebody before they lose all their money. And it's a concern to give aid and assistance. Congress passed what is now called the PPP plan, the Payroll Protection Plan, which was a way of uh, keeping people uh, on payrolls of employees. But there's been an awful, awful lot of confusion about it. it. The program was put together in a hurry. And of course, anytime you do something like that, uh, there are always gaps in the plan sure. that uh, sometimes come out. 
what uh, what are you hearing and how are you uh, how is your office involved in the PPP situation? Well, one thing I did was I, I wrote a letter to Congress with a whole bunch of other attorneys general urging them when they renew the PPP program that they work a lot harder at getting that money to small town Main Street. Because if you look, it seemed like all the companies that got it were all these big companies had, you know, a raft of accountants and lawyers. And so they got all their paperwork in first. But the companies that really need it, the ones that don't have any cash cushion, they've got, you know, three, eight, ten employees, they're the ones who had a, a lower rate of success. And so I really believe that I, I support the program because it's really important to help businesses get through this incredibly tough time and keep their employees on the payroll. I mean, we want people to stay employed. Uh, but I think the program could be restructured to better target those companies that really need it. Uh, from a scam perspective, we hear a lot of scams around the PPP program where people will say, I'm calling to help you get your PPP loan, pay me money, and I will make sure it happens. You know, get this at payment in advance. That's a very common um, strategy of scam artists. So we encourage businesses out there that are looking for help, be very wary of anybody who's trying to charge you money to get the PPP. Well, now, uh, of course, a number of companies, well, all the companies that got the PPP have to be, uh, the, have to justify the fact that the money went for what it, it's supposed to. And that also has led to some confusion. A lot of people have been watching as the rules have kind of changed. But some of the problems have been straightened out and made a little bit clearer. Uh, but that process is just now beginning as, uh, as uh, people are beginning to justify what they did with the PPP money for it to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. So, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, of course, the other thing that was interesting to me about that thing was they, they picked an arbitrary number of 500 employees. I mean, that's... I guess there has to be an arbitrary number, but what happens if somebody has 525 and somebody has 475? I mean, that's so close to the same size company. Yeah, you just got to draw the line. You got to draw a line somewhere. That's the problem. Well, uh, now other plans that are being considered by uh, Congress to aid and assist uh, the citizens. Uh, how? Uh, what effect is that having on your office as far as? Uh, questions that you're getting. Well, one thing I, I did was I actually organized a, a letter of attorneys general, and it was, a, it was a bipartisan letter, Republican and Democratic attorneys general from around the country, urging Congress for the next stimulus bill. And, and I do believe gonna be, there's going to be another one in, in the next couple of weeks, that they include a, a broadband expansion component. Because what has been clear, you know, we've been talking about Zooming and using the internet to communicate with each other because we can't be in person. Well, if you're in rural North Carolina and, and your Internet's not any good, it becomes very hard for you to exist in this Internet world that we're living in. We also saw it with schools. You know, if school, the, the kids, the last couple months of schools, they're having to study at home. A lot of kids don't have access to decent Internet. A lot of them didn't have the hardware to access the Internet, even if they did. And so making sure that there's a substantial component of the next stimulus bill to address the uh, imbalance that exists in broadband was something I, I've championed and will continue to champion. Um, uh, other aspects that I think that the bill, any next bill needs to happen, 
take into account is helping state and local government budgets because we haven't seen it so much in the, most budgets are at the end of June uh, for public entities. So we were able to kind of stagger through the end of this fiscal year. But the next fiscal year, which is 2020 and 2021, there's going to be a real reduction in revenues because there's been so much less economic activity. You know, people are earning less income. They're buying fewer things, so there's less sales tax. Uh, the federal government really has to help backstop a lot of these towns and cities, counties, uh, and the state of North Carolina, or else there's going to be really devastating cuts, uh, and mainly to our public schools. And we need to do the opposite of that to make up the, the lost time of learning that the kids have experienced due to this coronavirus. Well, there's so many different aspects to this situation. The uh, tax situation is certainly going to be interesting because as we have more people out of work, we also have less uh, businesses uh, in general operating. For example, all the sports revenue is is wiped away for the time being, and that uh, uh, is just one example of, of how many different categories are going to be wiped out completely. Yes, so many industries. I mean, the travel yeah. and tourism and entertainment, <clears throat> gyms. I mean, I, ha- I hate it. I just hate it for all of these folks. Uh, and, you know, these are business people, entrepreneurs who put their heart and soul into building something. And to have this uh, insidious virus come in and steal it from them, I, 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 it breaks my heart. But that's why the federal government really has to be our backstop to get us through this. Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and we will be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers. In the next segment, we're going to look at some of the more routine things that we were dealing with before the pandemic that uh, are continuing, like robocalls and opiate and things of that nature. And we'll do that right after these messages. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. We're back with Attorney General Josh Stein here on Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, we have already talked about uh, on this program the effect that... Uh, the pandemic and all the complicating factors that it is causing is having on the court system. And uh, we said the wheels of justice always move a little slow, but they're moving slower for a while now. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about the continuing things that were on your plate before the pandemic and, and where do they stand? For example, a lot of people have been very concerned about robocalls mm -hmm. and uh, we, we touched on, on scams and robocalls is one way that people are, are reached by the so-called scam artist. Robocalls has been the primary way in which scammers try to steal from us. And so I have made it a top priority to do everything we can to put a stop to these things. It's exceptionally complicated and tough, but we're actually beginning to make progress. We had a big win in the United States Supreme Court earlier this week. Um, I off, my office authored a brief that had this sign-on of 33 states. Again, bipartisan. Here, Don, one thing I've learned about robocalls, Democrats hate them, Republicans hate them, independents hate them. Uh, even we learned this week the Supreme Court hates them because they ruled in our favor upholding the federal ban on robocalls. So that was a big, a big win. The U.S. Congress Again, they have a tough time doing much of anything. They passed a bill into last year called the Traced Act, Act, which forces the phone companies to adopt some technology that they'd already voluntarily agreed with me that they would deploy called Stir Shaken. It's an authentication program so that they every phone call that is made gets a digital fingerprint. And it ensures that when you get a phone call, that the number that displays on your caller ID is the same number that it was made from, that they can't spoof that number. That's what happens so often in these robocalls is you get a phone call and you're like, is that my wife's number? It looks really familiar, but it's from some person somewhere else who's got a make-believe phone number on, on the call. We want to make sure that we can deal with the, that spoofing. We want the phone companies to deploy technology to screen out these calls on the front end. And for those that get through, we want the phone companies to cooperate with law enforcement so we can hold these lawbreakers accountable. And that was another part of the Trace Act was to tell the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, to work out a mechanism, find an organization that can facilitate the relationship between the phone companies, which have the technical information, and law enforcement like me, who can go after the lawbreakers. And I, I just did a, a letter that got 52 attorneys general, including the district and in, in, I think it was Puerto Rico. And we want them to help us go after them. I, about two or three weeks ago, I was in federal court. My office was in federal court in Texas going after a guy who made 75 million phone calls into North Carolina. Um, he was pitching extended automobile warranties, 75 million. And so we want to find these lawbreakers and make them pay. And ultimately, that's how we're going to succeed in, in putting a stop to the scourge. Something interesting you said several times about working with other attorneys general, and that is, uh, it seems like there's more bipartisan cooperation with attorney generals than there is in, in Congress. Certainly, it, it seems like it's that there are more things for you to agree on, and that uh, you guys get along better than Congress. Yeah, I was just on a call this morning with the Tennessee Attorney General Herbert Slater. He, he's a Republican, and he and I worked together on a number of issues. We co-chair the Consumer Protection Committee for the National Association of Attorneys General. And yet one thing about it, attorneys general is we're law enforcement. And law enforcement isn't partisan to the same degree that Congress or a legislative body is going to be. So there is a lot of work that we do together in collaboration. Um, 
I, I don't want to be Pollyannish. There are times when politics comes into our work, just like it does everything else. But I think when you compare it to other types of institutions like a legislature or a Congress or uh, something like that, we are able to focus on serving our constituents uh, and party label doesn't mean doesn't mean as much. Now you mentioned earlier in the program that uh, governments are going to have a serious problem as they look at the next year uh, because North Carolina, of course, has a balanced budget requirement. Um, with the exception of capital improvements, we, mm -hmm. we uh, have to balance our budget. So cities and counties have the same situation. And with less revenue coming in and less money going around, there's going to be, of course, a lot of budget cuts. Are you facing similar cuts in your office with the attorney general's office? Uh, what, what are you looking at? We don't know yet. Uh, we certainly hope not. Uh, my office experienced really drastic cuts a few years ago, even when there was no budget crisis. And, and we're still trying to deal with the consequences of those cuts. And so there really isn't uh, a lot of opportunity uh, for more cuts. Our hope is, is that we can get through this crisis. The federal government will be the backstop. And then that way, when we come out the other side in 21-22, that year, budget, revenues will be back up again, and we, we won't have experienced a, a really drastic reduction, whether it's in public safety or in our schools or uh, health care uh, or justice, like what I do. Well, the good news is apparently the stock market and the business community does think that the, the economy is going to return because the stock market has not had drastic uh, drops like it does in a normal uh, recession. Uh, this is a downturn in the economy, but not necessarily a recession. And so the, the stock market, the business community is, I guess, uh, showing some confidence that things will return to normal. Let's hope uh, so. I mean, for everybody's sake, let's hope so. That's exactly right. Uh, and of course, the last two job reports have been more promising than, uh, than people first thought. Uh, let's turn to another question, because we've had uh, a, a number of demonstrations and people that are concerned about social justice and criminal justice and so forth. And there's a task force for racial equality in criminal justice. And I believe you're chairman of that. Is that correct? Yeah, Don, I am. It's something that the governor created. He issued an executive order. And this is in the wake of the murder uh, of George Floyd. We have all come to realize that we need to do better, that the way that blacks are treated in the criminal justice system, but not only that, in the economy, in healthcare, in education, in housing, uh, is not right, and we have to do better. And so the governor created this task force to address the question of racial equity as it relates to the criminal justice system. And he asked me and Associate North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls to co-chair it. Uh, he is going to announce the membership of this task force today or tomorrow, I believe. And we're having our first meeting on Friday. And I am so anxious to get to work, to identify and implement. And that's really critical. We want to implement improvements to our system of criminal justice. Uh, the governor was very clear when he and I talked about it. He's like, I'm not looking for some blue ribbon commission report. I want this to be a task force that's focused on action and getting things done. And that's what we want to achieve. The uh, One of the things that sort of concerns me about uh, all the reform that we're talking about is um, the word economic uh, reform is not mentioned as often as perhaps I think it should be because 
One of the problems, of course, is uh, in, in many cases, this is a problem not uh, tied directly to race, but it's tied more to poverty. Is there any movement up front to uh, see what we can do to create more jobs and uh, to uh, raise the standard of living of those who are working for lower wages? I, a, I completely agree with your point, Don. And I think that we need to be moving and addressing inequity on all fronts simultaneously. We have a more limited charge, of course, with our task force. But, you know, the, the minimum wage in North Carolina uh, on real terms is thousands of dollars less today than it was in the 60s. We hadn't raised the minimum wage in, I don't know, 10, 15 years in this state. Uh, so there's real economic inequality where people who are doing well, you just mentioned the stock market, is continuing to grow. The, the people at the very top are doing exceptionally well, even in this period of, of massive unemployment, whereas working folks are not. A lot of them are really struggling month to month. And, and you know, thank goodness there was the unemployment um, expansion uh, by Congress to help people get through some of this time. But even that's going to run out at the end of this month. So we need to address a lot of issues to give people meaningful opportunity to succeed. Like if you're out there busting your tail and you're working 40 hours, 45 hours a week, that should be enough to actually pay for your housing, pay for a car, make sure that you have some kind of health insurance so that if you get sick, you don't lose all your money, and that your kids get a decent education. Like that's what people want. They don't want, you know, they don't want a private jet to go to a Caribbean island. They just want to have a, a life where they can provide for their families. This seems to put an awful, and I know we're getting away from your job, but this seems to put an awful uh, a big opportunity and burden on the community college system because that seems like that's where one of the immediate sources for economic reform can uh, turn to is better training. I think that the community colleges are going to see massive increase in enrollment next year, particularly if the universities aren't able to go back to in-person classes because I think a lot of people are going to say, I can pay full freight to go to a, a state university or even a private university and get some online education, or I can pay a fraction of the cost, get some credits at a community college, and when they're ready to go back to in-person, I can transfer my credits. And so I think you're right. I think the community colleges are a critical solution to get helping people build the skills within themselves to be marketable and productive in the economy at a very affordable rate. I mean, we're really blessed to have such a strong community college system here in North Carolina. Well, uh, there are so many things you can say about raising the standard of living because it also cuts down on crime, which is a, a, a very costly thing uh, to all the, the citizens, uh, not only the court system, but the uh, penal system and all that sort of thing. Well, uh, we've got one more segment coming up. Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and we've talked about all sorts of things, and we'll be back with one more session, as I said, and uh, that will come up right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was going to do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. 
I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. Just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. And you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with uh, the Honorable Josh Stein, who is the Attorney General of North Carolina, the uh, actually the 50th Attorney General, Attorney General that we've had, and. Um, a long list of very distinguished names in that list. I, I go back and look at it and remember uh, some of the older, older folks like me can look back and, and remember a lot of those names as being great, great public servants. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's a very important job in the state of North Carolina. Uh, um, we opened the program uh, today by talking about the COVID-19 situation and what it's doing. And, and so for those who joined the program a little later, why don't you give a very quick uh, re refreshing course on the fact that there are some scams going on outside and some things that are happening because of COVID-19 that are affecting, that is affecting the, uh, the judicial system in the state of North Carolina. So uh, maybe take two or three minutes to kind of review what you said earlier. Happy to, Don. Yeah, I mean, COVID-19 is a public health crisis, and obviously the top job for all of us is keeping as many people healthy and well as possible. And and the quicker we are successful at stamping this thing out or at least reducing it so that the transmissions rates are really low, the quicker we can get this economy going full, full bore forward again. And so job number one, public health. But we really want people to know about protecting themselves from consumer scams because that core function we do at the AG's office is to protect consumers. We're seeing two major things folks need to look out for. One is the scammers will exploit any opportunity of fear, confusion, uncertainty to steal from you your personal information or your money. So somebody might call and promise you a, a, a testing kit or a mask or uh, a, a cure, or they can get you your unemployment money quicker, or they can get you your in economic impact payment. They are doing this in order to either get your money or your personal information. So be careful. Another thing we're focused on is enforcing the state's price gouging law. We've gotten over 2,000 complaints about price gouging and are investigating each one. We brought an action against a tow company in Charlotte, Don, that was putting a boot on some trucks that had permission to be parking where they were and then was charging $3,000 or $4,000 and in one case $4,400 for the trucker to get the boot off their cab so that they could get medical supplies, food, water, cleaning supplies back in the stream of commerce. And we have prevailed at the um, hearing level. Uh, we've gotten injunctions to block the, the tow company while the, the litigation is continuing. So 
be careful out there from scams, folks. And look out for your parents and grandparents because they're getting inundated with phone calls and emails, and you want to make sure that they're not getting taken advantage of. And while we're on this subject, why don't you give that toll-free number that you have where if people do have a question, the best thing to do is call you. Yeah. I think it's always important to remind people who are being pressed on the telephone or by email to give an answer. They don't have to give the answer. Then. They can, they can hang up that phone. We, we tell them to hang it up, hang it up. Yeah. But you can call our office, 877-5-NO-SCAM, 877-5-NO-SCAM. And if you get a robocall and want to report it, we actually have an online form you can use, which is ncdoj.gov slash no robo. And let us know about the types of scams that uh, are coming your way, and that will help us with our enforcement priorities. I'm going to ask you to give those numbers again in a few moments. So this will give the listeners an opportunity to get a piece of paper and a pen. I was having trouble getting that out uh, to write those numbers down. Now, we also uh, know that you have ongoing work in a number of areas that have continued despite the uh, the COVID-19 situations that you're facing. And uh, one of those has to do with sexual assault kits. Yeah, we're making real important progress here in North Carolina. Uh, I I asked the legislature a couple of years ago to have every local law enforcement agency in the state, you know, there's about 600 of them, to tell us how many of these sexual assault evidence collection kits did they have in their evidence rooms. And we discovered that it was over 15,000, just an absolutely uh, startling, distressing number because each one of those kits came from a person who had been assaulted and then went through hours of invasive examination to give evidence to the criminal justice system to pursue justice for them and hold some violent person accountable. And sadly, nothing happened to those kits. So I, I worked with the legislature. We got $6 million from them last year. Uh, the year before that, I'd gotten $4 million in grant funds when the legislature didn't give me any money. And so we've got a lot of money. We've got contracts with outside vendors. And now we are in the process of having all these kits shipped to the outside labs where they can be analyzed. And we've already done a couple few thousand of them, Don. And what we're finding is that about one out of every five comes back to a known individual, somebody who is in the database. And then that information is shared with local law enforcement, which can go out there and do their investigation and, and arrest somebody who committed a allegedly, potentially committed a sexual assault. Some of them were five years ago. Some of them were 30 years ago. And in this way, the, that victim finally has peace and the community is safer because rapists are behind bars. You know, we were talking uh, during one of the breaks that uh, if, if this program were being held in a time before COVID-19, there's a lot of other questions I would ask you. And one of them would have to do with e-cigarettes. Where, what's what's uh, the progress or what's happening in the e-cigarette world? As you know, I sued uh, Juul, which is the 800-pound gorilla company that has uh, really dominated the e-cigarette market. And for parents out there, you may not even really be aware of it, but this has become an absolute epidemic among middle and high schoolers. Uh, All the gains that we had achieved from a public health perspective over a 20-year period in reduced teen smoking have been evaporated. They're all gone. 
more kids are smoking today than they did 20 years ago. It's terrible. And it's because of these e-cigarette manufacturers. I've got a trial date with Juul, the company that I assert intentionally designed their product to uh, lure these kids onto their product. And uh, we'll see how it works out this fall. But I want to hold them accountable. And I, I, I want to do everything I can to prevent another generation of young people from becoming addicted to nicotine. And we've got about a minute for you to also bring us up to date on where we stand on another crisis that we faced and still do face, and that's the opioid. Yeah, it's this is heartbreaking because we had actually started to bend that curve. We had had years and years of increase of opioid overdose deaths, and in 2019, we actually had a 10% reduction, and it was starting to go the right way. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, opioid deaths are spiking, and it, it, it's just heartbreaking uh, that so many people – are dying from opioid overdose. So I am helping to lead a national coalition. Again, it's a bipartisan group of AGs to hold the drug manufacturers and drug distributors that created this crisis accountable because they have to help us pay to clean up this mess they created. Let's uh, give those telephone numbers and the web address that people can get help from uh, if you are called about what you think might be a scam. Sure. 877-5-NO-SCAM. Put that beside your telephone. Give us a call. If you want to report a robocall, you can go to our website, ncdoj.gov slash no robo. Well, I think we've done a great job of covering a lot of territory. And if you missed the early part of the broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear a repeat of the entire broadcast. If you happen to be listening to one of the stations that carries only the half-hour version, you can hear the two segments that you missed at that same website, carolinanewsmakers.com. Again, uh, Attorney General Stein, we appreciate you taking time to be with us, and we will look forward to having you back again soon. Don, always a pleasure. uh, To the rest of the folks, uh, this program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he uh, has promised me faithfully, and he is a man of his word. They'll have another guest for us again next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So until next week, same time, same station, here on Carolina Newsmakers, have a good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.